It's been uh, quite a week just to fill you in. Pastor Chris was scheduled to preach this Sunday, but uh, he needed to book a flight down to California to see his mom and minister to his dad and, and his brothers, and so continue to pray for him. And uh, she's recovering. I think she had another surgery this morning for open heart surgery, and so there's a lot of moving parts there that's been pretty hard for the family. So he booked a ticket on Tuesday, and I got sick on Wednesday. I got a man cold. You guys know what that is? Some of the men do, right? I slept for 14 hours on Wednesday. So thankful the Lord blessed me with five women in my house because they took really good care of me. And I hope I don't fall over. So I didn't have enough time to prepare a sermon or mental energy. And so I changed things last minute because it is Palm Sunday and I took a sermon that I preached a number of years ago out of John 12 and reworked it for Palm Sunday. And so I appreciate your flexibility, church. And I pray that this sermon will be a help as we begin a week of worship leading up to uh, Friday and next Sunday. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to John 12 as we begin. Have you ever seen the, the PBS TV show, Antiques Roadshow? A lot of you have. I've seen a few episodes. It's fascinating to see the responses of people who bring in things that just been laying around their house for some time to see what it's worth. Some who are adamant that it's worth a lot and find out it's not much. And then some who are shocked. Tim Challies wrote about one instance a number of years ago in his blog about an elderly gentleman from Tucson, Arizona that brought in an old blanket. I don't know if you've heard this before. He inherited it never, a number of years ago. He knew it was old. He knew it was of some value perhaps even a, a couple hundred dollars, maybe even a thousand dollars, but it had been given down to him. He had folded it up and put it on a rocking chair for years where he drank coffee. And, and, and as he got onto the show and the blanket hung behind them, the expert appraiser told the, the man that his heart had stopped when he saw the blanket. And he began to explain what this blanket was. It was a, a Navajo chief's blanket that had been made in the 1840s. And it survived in such wonderful condition. It was one of the oldest intact Navajo weaves to survive the 21st century. And, and certainly one of only a tiny handful to exist outside of museum collections. And he showed the fine detail of the weaving, even one, one area where it had been torn and repaired shortly after it was first made. And you could see the excitement of the, the appraisers. He talked about this item that was before him. And and trying to explain such a rare national treasure that had incredible value. The appraiser in the show, and you can just Google this, you can see it, had trouble even beginning to tell the, the audience how important this blanket was. And he left no doubt, though, that when he told of the value, he said that the value would start around $350,000 to this elderly man carried a, a simple blanket that had been on the back of his chair as he drank coffee morning after morning, and he could not simply believe what he was hearing. And choked up, tears coming out of his eyes, he was floored and asked again, how much? And it's safe to say that that blanket that this man so just cavalier carried into the, the, this, this place would, would be taken out much differently with armed guards to his house. It was the same blanket, though. Nothing had changed about the blanket. It was the same thing that he had folded gently to take in that morning, and it was the same blanket he brought back home. But something else had changed, right? His perception 
the value that it meant to him. And it was very valuable. He ended up selling it to a museum and paid off his house and still worked until his mid to late 70s. But it was a treasure now. It was, it was worth more to him. As I said a few times already, today is Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, the, the week of the crucifixion of Jesus. And, and in John chapter 12, it begins for us Jesus' last week on earth. It's the last seven days that Jesus will spend with his disciples before he heads to the cross. It's one of the most significant weeks of all time. John 12 begins on Saturday, as we'll see, where Jesus is going to dine with Lazarus and his sisters. He's a pretty important guy. On Sunday, Jesus enters in Jerusalem triumphantly, and we'll see that also this morning. Jesus returns to Jerusalem on Monday and curses the fig tree on the way. Tuesday is his last public preaching in Jerusalem, and him retreating to the Mount of Olives and giving his discourse to the disciples. Wednesday, he stays again in Bethany and then returns to the city on Thursday to observe Passover with his disciples. Thursday night is when he's arrested and tried. And Friday, well, we know Friday. Friday is the day when Jesus is crucified. And John will now spend the next 10 chapters of his gospel describing in great detail this last week. It's that significant to John all of the private conversations that John has with his disciples and the events leading up to his death. But this morning, we're just going to look at the first 19 verses of John chapter 12. And this, this morning is about worship. I'm not sure if we have a, the outline. We'll get to that in a minute, but I did send it out. You didn't get it in the email, but you'll have it in the screen if you want to take notes. But as we look through this, these verses, I want you to look for three people in the ways in which they worship, okay? So John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was the one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on the account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on the account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and he had done to them. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. 
So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that he's gaining, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. There are three people in this that are worshiping. First, we'll look at the worship by Mary. I said worship of Mary, and that's probably not good. <laughs> Don't go there. Not worship by Mary. Uh, worship of, of Judas, his worship, and then the worship of the, the crowd. So here's the main idea. What we worship will either bring destruction or restoration. What we worship will either bring destruction or restoration. I'm going to pause, and I'm going to blow my nose. Thank you for your patience. So, the worship by Mary. Jesus had been staying away from Jerusalem until the time had come for him to enter, and, and he's going to do that dramatically. If you remember back in your mind to John chapter 11, you remember that was a significant chapter of what happened there. Lazarus, after being dead in the tomb for four days, Jesus comes and, and brings him out of the tomb alive. You don't really see that very often, right? In those moments, you can imagine Jesus displaying such power. I mean, power over death of a man, four days. They warned him, Jesus, he's going to smell. His body just started deteriorating. And Jesus has power over death, power to bring to life. And I'm sure the family was ecstatic. Lazarus is back in the celebration of this miracle that they had seen. And they had now a banquet dinner, as we read in John chapter 12, that to celebrate this, to celebrate him coming back to life. Verse 3, though, in this chapter stands out as one of the most beautiful scenes from the life of Jesus. Mary kneeling before our Lord, pouring out her most prized possession, anointing her Savior. And first we see this undaunting worship of Jesus. See, John 11 ended with a, a threat not only made to Jesus, but all to his, his followers, that if they knew where Jesus was, they were to turn him in so they might arrest him. And so the, the chapter ends in this way, and they go back to having this dinner so they knew that they're threatened and, and didn't matter. They're going to rejoice in what Jesus had done. They knew that they were going to be accessories to crime, but it didn't matter. They wanted to worship what God had done and to celebrate Lazarus' life. And so here they are having a, a dinner party open. A, a friend who was once dead is now alive, and they're going to celebrate that. Um, you rem remember that it wasn't just those that, that see Jesus as a danger, though, we read it also, they see Lazarus as a danger. They're going to they're gonna take him out here at the end of this se the section. He, he's, he's drawing too much attention. So, so they're going to kill him again. And they want to eliminate him because he's, he's evidence, really. He's evidence of Jesus' power. But regardless, Mary and Martha and Lazarus and disciples show their courage by meeting together and having a meal. The second thing I want you to notice of Mary here is the, the costly worship. John writes that Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. This expensive stuff, nard here, was rare and a precious spice that was imported from northern India. The Latin writer Pilney gives us a full and great description of the spice. He says, nard is a shrub whose leaves and shoots were harvested and taken by caravan to the west. Sometimes it was mixed with its own root to increase its weight. And Mary's gift was called pure nard, meaning that it had no additives. This stuff was like gold. It was worth a lot. And how much did this item cost, Mary? Well, Judas gives us some details. He's the money guy, right? He, he's, he's worried about what he could get. And he says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? 
most common laborers in that day received one denarii for a day's labor. So this perfume was, was almost a year's worth of labor. So I can do the math for minimum wage or whatever you want to do that, but just take your wage. How much do you make in a year? That's how it meant to her. That's how expensive it was to her. It was a lot of money to her. It was, it was something that you would put away and save and, and hope that it would, it would serve you when you're old, when you can't work, because you would sell it then. And in a matter of minutes, this money literally was poured out onto Jesus. And so Mary's worship here was costly. It cost her something. And she didn't do it begrudgingly. She delighted to do this. She, she thought not of herself, but for the love she had for her Lord. And thinking not of herself, she, she found great delight in giving her very best, really all that she had to Jesus. And, and I don't know about you, but when I meditated on this yesterday, it challenged me. What cost is too high for us to give to God? What is it in your life that you say, that's just too far? That cost too much for me to give to God? You know, really I'm asking, what is your most prized possession? Could be your savings account. If so, then give sacrificially out of your abundance because of your love for Jesus. Spurgeon said, our gifts are not to be measured by the amount that we contribute, but by the surplus kept in our own hand. Meaning, it's not by how much you give, but how much you have left. And we see that in the Gospels, right? With the widow giving all that she had. We often look at the gift we give, but God often looks at what we've kept back. It could be your time, it could be your skills as your most prized possession. So maybe you need to reorder your life so that you can serve others. You could serve in ways of the church. It could be that your life your very life is your most prized possession. And so, friends, the answer then is to give it to Jesus wholly and completely. And he'll lead you. It could be your, your pursuit of the American dream. The, the have it all, you know, a nice house, white picket fence, to build it up and just love it. That could be your most prized possession and Jesus may be calling you to leave that and to go to another country and work a job there and share the gospel. And yet, I think for many in this room at the ages that are here, your most prized possession is probably your kids. Like you'd rather go suffer than have your kids suffer. I'm just here to tell you I'm better off because I've suffered. So maybe God is calling not you to go to the mission field. Maybe God's calling your kids to go to the mission field. And not safe places either. 
but Iraq. See, God is not about to destroy your life and make things difficult. God knows better than we do. See, Mary took her most prized possession and she gave it willingly to her Lord. And so you need to ask, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't know your life. But you need to answer this question, what is my most prized possession? And am I holding on to that? Am I worshiping that more than I'm worshiping God? And these are hard questions to answer. What is it that's costly that we can give back to God? Because friends, if you have Jesus... You have everything that you could ever really need or want. Sometimes we have to let go of other things so that we can love and recognize the most prized possession of Jesus. See, Mary teaches us this morning, it's, it's truly better to give than to receive. And so she shows us this, they all do, this undaunting worship, this costly worship, and this, this really meek worship. <laughs> She kneels down with the expensive perfume and she anoints the feet of Jesus. You need to understand that during this time, it was, it was common for people not to bathe very frequently. And so it was hot and dry and a host would, would place a dab of oil on the guest's head, but Mary takes it to another level for her Lord. While Jesus reclines at the table, her, his legs extended outward, Mary proceeds to anoint not only his head, but his feet. And this is significant because it is considered beneath people to wash the feet of others during this time. Even slaves at this time had rights. And one of them was not being forced to wash the feet of their masters. That was one of their rights. They didn't have to do that. But Mary here doesn't hesitate to humble herself and worship to her Savior. And this is an extravagantly humble act of service by Mary. She not only anoints him, but, he, but she wipes his feet with her hair. And I'm sure people at the dinner looked around with amazement because, because she begins to anoint him, and then it turns to shock because she takes down her hair, which, another thing to mention, it was scandalous for a woman at this time to, to let down her hair in public. In fact, if a married woman did this, she could be divorced by her husband or even stoned. For a woman to let down her hair expressed intimacy and openness and servant love. And it was done in the privacy of the home, only around uh, close family members at this time. So, so Mary does this for Jesus, and she's communicating that she's fully surrendered to her Lord. She felt completely safe in his holy presence, and she saw him as her Lord. And so what we see here is Mary's act of service for Jesus was was significant. Her worship was genuine. And all who were there observed what true worship was and what sacrifice should look like for a Christian. So Mary is our first example of worship in this passage. The second example is that of Judas. There are two ways to view what Mary does for Jesus. The first way is what I cover in the first point, to to appreciate what she's done and, and, and to desire to emulate it in some way. The second way to respond to what she's done is to respond with disgust. And, and that's what Judas does here. Genuine devotion and worship to Christ will seldom go unchallenged in the world. And this was the same for Mary. Verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples 
who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? See, this, this is the challenge that is made against the devotion of those who desire to serve Christ with their life. It is, it is better, they argue, to do some practical work instead of worshiping God. And sadly, there are many people today that quote Judas and never really realize it. People who complain that we shouldn't give our money or our time and worship, instead we just need to give it to the poor. And there's a balance here that Jesus highlights in verses 7 and 8. He says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And he's saying you always have work to do, but don't neglect worship. Don't neglect worship. And unfortunately, Judas does not understand worship of God. But don't be mistaken, Judas does understand what worship is. And I, and I know that every person here understands worship. You were all made to worship. Maybe you don't like that term, but you all come out of the womb rated to give glory to something. You know it. We're, we're born as worshipers. We're very good at worshiping. I read a, a, an interesting book a number of years ago called We Become What We Worship, an academic book. And and it's a study of idolatry. And G.K. Beale talks about this. He says his main point really is what people revere, what they revere and worship, they resemble then. And he argues that we were made to bear the image of another and that we become the image of what we worship, either our creator or something in the creation. And so as you heard earlier, Psalm 15 perhaps is the clearest image. I don't know if you caught that when I read that opening passage. The focus of the psalm is, is deliberate construction of silver, gold, and other materials to be a God that is to be worshipped. And the psalmist looks at the statues and sees what looks like a mouth, eyes, ears, nose, hands, feet, and chest, but they have no functionality. None of these things are working, the psalmist says. They don't speak or see or hear or smell or handle or walk or even breathe. They can't speak truth to us, or they can't hear our prayers, or see our situation, or savor our worship, or receive our gifts. And the impact of this idol on those who worship him, I don't know if you call it in verse 8, I said, it, Psalm 115.8 says, those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. It's not that these idolaters lose their physical sense of speech or sight. Rather, it's a description of the idolaters' souls and spirits, lifeless and senseless like the idols that they worship. They are spiritually dumb, blind, deaf, powerless, and breathless. They become what they worship. And what does Judas worship here? Do you want to guess? Money. Really, I mean, it's, it's security. He wants to have enough. It's probably prestige a little bit and safety. You know, and John, John tells us, so we're not confused, John tells us what Judas is all about. Verse 6, did you see that? He, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So money would come in and Judas would take his share. Judas was the type of guy who had his mind on money all the time. And he, and he 
views everything in life from the aspect of financial value. And Judas has proven himself to be a real hypocrite. See, Mary's worship offended Judas because his focus in religion was getting something for himself. And when she broke open the bottle to anoint Jesus, all he saw was money being wasted. Money that that could go to the poor or himself. And, And what we see in this passage is Mary and Judas are extreme contrast in treasuring. They both have pleasure-seeking motives. Neither of them acted in a way of tolerance, but both acted in a way that would make themselves happy. They both did that. To Mary, Jesus was priceless, and she loved him more than anything in the world. So she gave away her most prized possession. To Judas, Jesus was just a man, and he's looking for his happiness in money and stuff. If you remember... For Judas, 30 pieces of silver was enough. Judas, his sin wasn't that he was hunting happiness in his life. His sin was believing that having money would make him happier than having Christ. And friends, what a horrible miscalculation for Judas. Here before Judas was a man worth more than the entire universe. And you see and hear him. He was there when, when Lazarus rose from the grave. A man worth more than anything. And all he can see in this moment with Mary is just a waste of money. And he's bothered by a year's worth of wages. Instead, of, instead, he should have been bothered by squandering this eternal treasure of Jesus Christ. He's worried about a year's wages instead of all of eternity. If we were to go to Matthew 13 and read, you would see an overflow of, of parables. But one that sticks out, I believe, this morning for us is in verses 44 and 46. Maybe it jogged your memory here. Just listen. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. I I like reading the Puritans. The Puritans had a, a lot of pathologies, but one of them was not a commitment phobia. Now these men were committed and the Puritans would talk about this passage and they would, they would constantly, thinking of this passage, ask people this, have you bought the pearl? I love that question. And what they meant simply was the man was, who looks and sees a treasure in the field enjoys and sells everything and buys that field. The man that, that finds this, this fine pearls and finds the one, sells everything so that he can buy it. Why? Because he knows what he gets for selling all of his wealth is a tremendous deal and he can't pass it up. He knows that there's nothing he has in his possession that's even worth the wrapping paper of this great treasure. And he, he, he says, I can't, I can get this treasure and all I need to pay is everything I own? That, that's it? 
I'm going to do that. Actually, it's, it's not that hard to see, right? If we put it in today's terms, friends, if you find a field in, in, in our area and you find out there's an oil well down below, no one else knows, it's there, you know it can make you a million dollars a year, but it costs everything you own, everything. What do you do? You sell it all, right? You don't even hesitate. You don't even talk to your spouse. Just trust me. You get rid of all of it, and it goes out as freely and as fast as it can go so you can have the money to go, to go get that item because you treasure it more than anything in the world because you know what it's worth. And Jesus is giving us this picture of the kingdom of God, of Jesus, of the worth of knowing him. It's worth getting rid of everything. And part of your problem, maybe, if you come in today, is you don't see the worth of Jesus. He is worth you selling everything and following him. Have you seen the surpassing worth of our Lord? Or are you just carrying around an old Navajo blanket not realizing what it's worth? You know, day in and day out, it's in the back of your chair and you're, you're drinking coffee and you don't realize what you have. Let me ask another challenging question, friends. What if someone was following you around every day? Could they tell that you actually bought the pearl? A lot of people in this room might say that they're a Christian. You yourself profess to be a Christian. But do you act like you have the most precious thing in the world? How would someone know from your life, from the fruit of your life, that there's nothing quite like Jesus? I can't answer that question for you. Can you, you need to point and think of some evidence in your life and how you live your life that you've bought the pearl, that you bought the field, that you, you know that this is worth everything and you're willing to do it. You're not begrudgingly doing it. You happily do it. Friends, there is nothing in this world, nothing, That is worth Jesus. That is worth more than him. He surpasses everything. Have you bought the pearl? The last group here I want you to notice is the worship of the crowd. When we come to verse 12, we come to a new day. Saturday's done, it's now Sunday. Another day closer to the death of Jesus. 
It's a week before his resurrection. This is Palm Sunday. Jesus enters in Jerusalem for the Passover in his third year of ministry. It's called the triumphal entry by commentators. And this, this event is one of the few that's captured in all four of the gospel accounts. Yet it's probably misunderstood by many. Look at verse 12. The next day the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had done, been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I'm going to blow my nose one more time. Very patient, and I'm not going to shake any of your hands today, just so you know. I'm going to steer clear. We find here a a large crowd that had come, made up of pilgrims, that had come to Jerusalem for the feast, for the Passover. Josephus, one writer, describes his Passover uh, was uh, around 2.7 million people, he guesstimates, that were there not counting the defiled and foreigners that were present in the city already. So even if his, his numbers are inflated, the crowds were undoubtedly huge. And what were the people wanting? Well, they had heard the news. I mean, when a man is dead four days in a tomb and walks out, I think news gets around pretty quick. Jesus couldn't hide at this point. He knew that. He knew what he was going into. And so the news had come around. And, and what had the people wanted all along? I mean, we just finished Luke, so I hope you guys understand this. What did they want all along? They wanted someone to defeat Rome, right? They wanted a king. They wanted someone to come in and, and, and take out the bad guys because they had been really bad. And they had heard about Jesus, and, and the rumor mill is churning, churning, churning more information. They see this guy who literally had raised him from the dead, and they think, this is it. This is our chance. This is our king. He needs to go and take care of Rome. And, and, and they picture in their mind what a king looks like. You know, what is, what is kingliness? You know, we don't have much opportunity here, so we fondle over things in the UK, right? We, we got to see the, the monarchy. That's why when, when they come to America, Oprah does a four-hour special, right? We want to know about the royals and what a king is and what royalty is. And everyone wants this ideal king, a king coming in power. I mean, you were born really to submit yourself to a king, the ideal king. And we run after a king. In our, in our life, you run after one king to the next, someone to submit yourself to, someone to worship really. And you always come surrounded. And the people here, they wanted a king also. But they wanted a king to come destroy Rome to liberate them. And so verse 13, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. 
that the name of Jesus was practically in everyone's tongue and they come to see Jesus enter the city and they cry out, Hosanna, which is not another name for him. And they pick up branches and they wave him. Why, why palm branches? Well, the answer is that palm branches have been a symbol of Jewish nationalism for the last 200 years. When Simon Maccabees drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem, restored the temple 150 years earlier, he was announced of this victory by waving palms. And during the wars of the Jewish rebellion after generation after Jesus, coins were made by the rebels with an image of palm branches. The palms were a symbol of, of Jewish conquering. And he's come to conquer, and so they stand there and wave palm branches, thinking that Jesus has come to conquer Rome. And it's further reinforced by their shouting, Hosanna. Again, it's not a name for him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna means save us now. Save us now. It comes from Psalm 118, which is sung during the Passover feast. And these words were reacted and, 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 and uh, repeated during the fast Passover feast as a, a fight song for the nation. See, their, their whole sight is, is set on Jesus coming to destroy the Romans. Come, wipe them out. Liberate us. You know, the, the Brits hail their monarch, God save the queen. You know, Americans greet their president, hail to the chief. Jews welcome Jesus, Hosanna. And they're running after him. And they're quickly shocked because what is Jesus riding in on? A donkey. What kind of king is this? This is the struggle that you see in the passage. You know, he just came a chapter before with power. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And, and you see now the loneliness of Jesus, the lowliness here. And he, he specifically asked to go get a donkey's colt, a very meek and humble animal. I mean, this goes against pomp and prestige and power. And Jesus here is specifically fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9. It says this, Behold, your king comes meek and lowly and riding on an ass colt. And for years, rabbis and students of the Old Testament tried to understand this prophecy. How can the Messiah come riding on a colt? If he's going to come liberate us from, from those that are putting us in bondage and enslave us, how, he, how can he be meek and mild and, and soft on a colt? How, how will this work? And Jesus is literally saying, he's saying, listen, guys, if I just came to liberate you from the Roman rule, what good would that do? You'll still die. You'll still have guilt. You'll still have meaningless existence. He's saying, I, I can come to overcome political oppression but what about your personal spiritual oppression? Jesus never got caught up with political games. Christian friends, we shouldn't either. Our greatest need is not a Republican president. 
our greatest need is a Savior. See, he's saying, I, I came to deliver you from something far more enslaving than Romans. I came to deliver you from death. I don't come with political clout. I don't come with the power you think I, I should have. I come in lowliness. I come in weakness. I come to die in your place. I come to take your place and to take your punishment and to deal with sin once and for all. And I'm going to deal with that. He's saying you need me to deal with sin. So don't get caught up with pomp and power. My triumph is my weakness. I'm a lamb, but I'm also a lion. And so strong I will put my head down on the chopping block where your head ought to go, and you will go free. John Stott says the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. We try to claim the rights that belong only to him. Therefore, he accepts the penalties that belong to us alone. Friends, the gospel is that he takes our place. This is the best news in the world. Jesus could have come and wiped out the Romans in a second, but that would have done nothing for them. Because what would have happened? Another ruler would have come again. Friends, your greatest need is not earthly oppression. I'm not trying to reject that there is. I know that there is. I know that we still live in a world, a sin-cursed world, but that's not your greatest need. If you're not in Christ, you're in bondage to sin. You need to be freed from that. You need this king in your life. When we see Jesus here making his last entry in the Jerusalem, verse 19, that the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Oh, how precious those words really are. Jesus had come to rescue his people. He'd come to rescue all his people from their sins. People from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And when you stand back and you see the significance of what this was and what Jesus accomplished, you stand in awe. This was Palm Sunday. And what was the expectation of the crowd? They wanted an earthly king to come conquer Rome. They wanted earthly redemption, but they didn't understand their greater needs. You know, we go to God when we need something. Virtually every person heads toward God because they need something. I heard a story yesterday, of a, I read a story of a pastor chaplain who was called to a hospital uh, for a patient that was in dire straits 
received some bad news and he got there to the hospital and, and meets the patient. And the man finds him and says, oh, oh, I don't need you now. The hospital mixed up the x-rays. I don't have cancer. You can go. And the pastor leaves. Now, I don't want to judge the pastor, but he missed an opportunity in that moment. You know, he could have said, really? You don't need me? I've never talked to anybody who's never going to die. I mean, you're an, an interesting person, really. You don't need a pastor? Okay, tell me, what's it like to live forever? He didn't. He's a pastor, and pastors are nice people. They usually don't want to step on toes. And the point of me saying that is that we usually see a problem when we go to God to ask for exactly what we think we need in that moment, not for what God knows we need. What did these people think they needed from Jesus? They wanted judgment for Rome. That's what they think they needed. We need freedom. We need the oppression to stop physically. But what did they really need? What these people really needed was someone to come down to bear the judgment for them because they were ruining the world because everybody in the human race was a part of that. What they really needed was their own pardon and reconciliation with God. So there's two implications here for this last part, and I'm almost done. There's never been a better example of the worthlessness of human celebrity than on Palm Sunday. Some of the people, I know you've heard this, who were shouting Hosanna on this Sunday were shouting crucify on Friday. The fickleness of human nature, friends, especially young people, if you can just key in on this and hear me, the world will tell you what you want to hear and then they'll change their mind 15 minutes later. What regard is the world's favor worth to you? And how different is that from God's regard? Human celebrity is really worth nothing. It matters much more of what God thinks. And second implication is Palm Sunday is an incredible parable of the lifelong mismatch of what we think we need and what God has provided. See, friends, what we think we need in life is almost always too shallow. And what God does in our life in the short term is, is most often very confusing to us. We need to keep in mind that when we come to him virtually always, he's going to give you what you really need, not what you think you need. Because when you go to God, you're not God. I don't know if that shocks you this morning. I'm happy to shock you. You're not God. You don't have the mind of God. And he's going to confound your expectations and he's going to exceed them. 
put it in a nutshell, God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. He's not going to stoop so low to just give you what you think you need. He'll exceed that because he knows more than you. And if you learn this, friends, if we learn this, we'll live a contented, non-anxious life. We'll still go to God in prayer, but we'll go with open hands and not clenched fists to what we think we need. And if you don't learn this, you'll continue to live in deep distress and mistrust and just crippling anxiety. So many of us go to God and tell him our problems and we go to him and tell him to fix him this way. Friends, you don't know what God knows. I don't know what God knows. And, and Jesus always says, I'm going I'm to go to the root of things, which is what you need. And what you need first is reconciled to God. You need to have your sins dealt with. You need to have a relationship with me. And not just you, but others in your life. And I'm working in those things. He's working in just that, more than that one area. See, God is always doing 10,000 things, and you might know one or two. And he's always working. And our job as Christians is to trust him. It's to trust him to rejoice in the gospel and what he's done for us in the cross and to trust him and to worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can remember you. We remember Jesus in this Palm Sunday. We know what this week means for us. And we thank you and love you for providing what we truly need not just what we think we need. God, help us in our prayers. Father, you know the people seated here and so many are sorting through all sorts of difficulties in their life, relationships, job, struggles, and looking for direction, looking for answers, focusing on that. And I ask God that you would help them to not focus on answers that they can decide and, and fix on their own, but may they focus on you. May they trust you. May they trust in you more than themselves and how smart they think in this area. May we come to you with open hands, ready to receive what your will is for our life. We thank you for this week that we can remember what Christ has done and your death this week. I pray that we would join back again as a church family on Friday to remember your death. And we look forward to Sunday. We look forward to the day where we can rejoice as the gathered church that Jesus is alive. And we know he's alive now and inter interceding for us on our behalf. And so help us to be faithful this week in our work, in our families, in our schools. And for your honor and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.